Suddenly, there's been a great change. Instead of reading what journalists around the world write about distant foreign crises, many of them are landing right here in Hong Kong because for the first time since the handover in 1997, Hong Kong itself has become one of the world's top news stories. In most nations of the world, except, of course, China itself, Hong Kong is hitting the global headlines. But in China, you can be detained or imprisoned if you try to find out what is happening in Hong Kong. Living up to the tradition of never missing a beat, Andrew Jacobs of the New York Times reports that, quote, nearly two dozen people have been detained across mainland China for expressing support for the growing protests in Hong Kong in an effort by the Chinese authorities to contain the spread of pro-democracy sentiment. However, he also reports that a quaint campaign has started in China, Going Bald for Hong Kong, in which participants cut off their hair and then post images of their newly bald heads online. But some have already been detained for making such posts. One of the best reports backgrounding Hong Kong that has come out so far before demonstrations reached their recent peak, was by the New Yorker magazine's Asia correspondent, Evan Osnos, entitled China's Hong Kong Mistake. He did not even have to wait until there were demonstrations in the street in order to report some important insight, which he did in the September the 2nd edition of his magazine. Firstly, he acutely summarises the legacy of 1997. Quote, Under a deal brokered with the British, China agreed not to alter Hong Kong's internationalised way of life, including freedom of expression, freedom of assembly and other political rights not permitted on the mainland for half a century. The theory was that as mainland China continued to climb out of the poverty and instability of the past, its leaders would gradually allow more political openness on the mainland. After a half century by 2047, so the thinking went, the gap between the mainland and its reunited territory would have narrowed so much that they could mesh without much difficulty, unquote. Yes, that was the thinking at that time, but it always worried me that the target for Hong Kong remaining unchanged, continuing as its old self, was only for half a century. It wasn't an indefinite agreement as international agreements often are. It was only for 50 years. Osnos' summary of the thinking behind that target is from a Western democratic point of view. But I've always wanted to know, did the Chinese negotiators think the same way? Or did they assume something quite different? Did they assume, to the contrary, that during those 50 years they would so change the habits and the laws of Hong Kong that many of the traditions developed by the British would simply be eliminated and the former colony could be absorbed into a communist China without difficulty? I saw then, and I still see now, no inclination whatsoever by the Chinese Communist Party to move China towards the texture of even a partially democratic Hong Kong. 
Recently, of course, the movement is now more obviously in the reverse direction, as Osnos points out when he summarises the directive issued by the Standing Committee of China's National People's Congress in relation to the 2017 election of Hong Kong's chief executive. After first recalling the appropriate words of an old-time American political wheeler-dealer, Boss Tweed, I don't care who does the electing, but just so long as I get to do the nominating. China saw to it that at best only China's psychophants in Hong Kong could do all the nominating. It is at this point in his article that Osnos deploys an important insight regarding this current political crisis, which he says, quote, will likely grow and is proving to be a test not only of Hong Kong's political culture, but also of which ethic will prevail across China in the years ahead, whether it will be globalism or nationalism. Two fundamentally different conceptions of how China will relate to the rest of the world. Hong Kong takes pride in its role as Asia's original global city, but on the mainland, even as China's economy has continued to grow and its population has become more integrated with the world, leaders have set new limits on political liberalisation. They have concluded that greater democracy would threaten political stability and sovereignty and they believe that China must instead adhere to its own centralised one-party model, unquote. This is, of course, the world as it exists today. Often, but not always, democratic globalism is competing against what is nearly always authoritarian nationalism. The United States, the European Union, are the main states pursuing and encouraging democratic globalism, while China and Russia prefer and encourage authoritarian nationalism. Hong Kong, as a former British colony, is naturally inclined towards democratic globalism, but since 1997, China has had the power to steer the special administrative region towards authoritarian nationalism, hence the Chinese Communist proposal via the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress for the next Hong Kong election for its chief executive to be only an election in name but certainly not in substance. The Hong Kong people will get the right to vote, but almost certainly only for Beijing-favoured candidates. In his article, Osnost illustrates China's increasing preference under the leadership of Xi Jinping for the authoritarian nationalist ethic by referring to the list of seven don't-mentions in the now notorious secret Communist Party directive known as Dem Document Number 9, which singled out seven topics which were to be banned from public discussion anywhere in China. Constitutional democracy, universal values, civil society, market liberalism, media independence, criticising errors in the history of the party called historical nihilism and questioning the policy of opening up in its reforms and the socialist nature of the Beijing regime. Document number nine would appear to have had the effect of further silencing liberal voices within China. 
The secret document number nine has effectively become the eighth do not mention topic, even as its influence within China becomes pervasive. Under China's communist regime, the country has never lurched towards a totally globalist posture, either with or without democracy. But at least under leaders like Hu Yaobang or Zhao Ziyang, and even to some extent under Jiang Zemin, gestures would be made suggestive of a perhaps more liberal future for China. So there were hopes, naive in retrospect, that the advent of a reformist regime under Xi Jinping would see more such movement. It would have been so easy. The moderate suggestions of the Charter 08 movement could have been reconsidered, or at least no longer considered subversive. The harsh 11-year prison sentence on Liu Xiaobo, the main author of that document, could have been reduced. Easiest of all, the illegal de facto house arrest by the security services of his wife, Liu Xia, who has not been accused of any crime, could have been ordered ended. If this had been done, dissenters within China could have breathed a little easier. The Standing Committee of the National People's Congress could even have issued an edict allowing for a real election in 2017 in Hong Kong. Instead, she has ushered in a more hardline regime, dedicated to seeing enemies abroad and subversives at home. The right of foreign nations to criticise China is continually being denounced, even though it was a co-signatory to the treaty laying out the conditions for the return of Hong Kong to China, Britain and also former Governor Chris Patton have been denounced for criticising China on the way that return is now being implemented. The nationalist propaganda against China's former enemy, Japan, has reached such proportions that a significant percentage of Japanese and Chinese citizens now tell pollsters that a Sino-Japanese war is distinctly possible in stark contrast to the almost deferential way in which Chinese diplomats behaved towards the United States when Nixon and Kissinger were normalizing Sino-American relations, they often aggressively denounced Washington today on numerous issues. The hardline posture has been very visible in relation to Hong Kong. Even as the standing committee issued its restrictive election ruling, the People's Daily suggested that, quote, foreign agitators were attempting to turn Hong Kong into a bridgehead for subverting and infiltrating the Chinese mainland. This can absolutely not be permitted. There comes a point with many authoritarian regimes where they start believing their own propaganda, listening to their own fears instead of their hopes. In relation to Hong Kong, China has reached that point. Osnosk notes a classic example of this process at work. Quote, In theory, China's President Xi Jinping could have sought a middle road that would have opened up the nominating process enough to produce a competitive election. But when the protests in Hong Kong began earlier this year, Beijing worried that backing down would embolden further acts of resistance, not only in Hong Kong, but also on the mainland. If we yield because some people threaten to commence radical illegal activities, it would only result in more bigger illegal activities, Li Fei, a mainland official, told Hong Kong lawmakers.
Asnos concludes his New Yorker article with his view that the struggle over political values at the centre of this crisis runs much deeper than the technical debate over Hong Kong's elections. It is likely to get worse before it gets better. And that was written perceptively at the beginning of September. Let's end at that point for now. The underlying struggle between globalism and nationalism in China is absolutely certain to continue. But I will just end with a few comments on the struggle on the streets of Hong Kong this past week. First, just as in Taiwan over the disputed trade with China bill earlier this year, when the DPP leaders were not a factor, the students have made all the running here. It was not the middle-aged leadership of the Occupy Central movement that took center stage. It was the students about whom we know too little. The Hong Kong students saw that China's nationalism ethic was taking over from Hong Kong's global ethic and they did not like what they saw. Second, the student demand for C.Y. Leung's resignation has tended to overshadow the far more important demand for a real election in 2017 and thereafter. The resignation, if it took place, could have enabled China to satisfy that demand while forgetting about the election change altogether. CY was merely getting China to do what it wanted rather than satisfying the students' election demands. CY has missed out by preferring to be the tool of China's nationalism rather than fulfilling Hong Kong's globalism. Third, the people of Hong Kong have demonstrated conclusively that their passion for a democratic future is not some Anglo-American plot, but rather the natural urge of Chinese people everywhere longing to be free from authoritarianism. <laughs>